Welcome to the Highly Objective Podcast, where we talk to cannabis industry executives and investors and go into the weeds on recent news. Yay! My name is George Mancharel. I'm CEO and uh, co-founder of Bespoke Financial. Um, you know, prior to co-founding Bespoke, my background was very strictly in the finance industry, um, working at investment banks like Goldman and then um, on the buy side with institutional asset managers like uh, Guggenheim Partners Investment Management, always focused on the structured credit type um, investments. So these are lending deals that are catered to less liquid, less developed markets, um, you know, in contrast to something like the IG corporate space or the bank loan space. These are deals that are tend to have some sort of quirkiness to them or something unique that makes it a little non-standard. And so, you know, spent 12 years, um, you know, in that seat, uh, looking at a variety of different deals. And that was around the same time, you know, the tail end of my, my career there coincided with markets like California turning on adult use recreation in 2018. And, you know, just personally, I think, you know, the war on drugs has been a, a broadly failed effort, a misuse of, of, uh, of resources. Um, it's resulted in, I think, a lot of societal harm um, rather than the societal good it was it was trying to promote. And so, you know, one, just on my, on my personal beliefs, I'm just a huge uh, believer in people having choice. And, and I'm also a believer in the fact that cannabis, I think, can improve the quality of life for a lot of people in this country. And I think it's been, you know, sort of had its reputation maligned um, over the past 70, 80 years or so in the U.S. And so when it looked like the legalization mo movement was getting more momentum behind it, um, and the fact that looking at the industry at the time, and even today, that lending isn't really a viable option for a lot of operators within this space. Um, and given that that was my bread and butter focus in, in my previous career, it just jumped out as, I think, an exciting opportunity to, one, get involved in industry on day one at its nascent stages and seeing it develop into a CPG juggernaut. And then ultimately also providing a very vital tool and a vital service that due to regulatory you know, mismatches between the federal level and state level just wasn't broadly available. And so you know, the, the core thesis for us has always been that over a period of five to 10 years, cannabis should operate like any other mature CPG industry, alcohol, tobacco, you can compare it to really any, any industry that you want within the space. But all of those markets are very reliant on functioning debt financing capital markets. And so the, the thesis was that this would eventually exist and emerge for this industry as a way to scale their operations. And, and we just wanted to be at the forefront, be a first mover in the space and, and really lead the charge. And also enable these companies to not have to wait until the political changes on the federal level actually allow for this on, on a more broad scale. So that was really the, uh, the genesis behind founding Bespoke. And, and how did you get connected with, with your initial investors in, in Casa Verde? Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, like I said, I, I had worked at, at Goldman Sachs for, for a number of years and uh, through the Goldman Alumni Network, um, I was aware of, you know, both Curran individually and then over the past couple, you know, from 2016 to 2018, I had been, you know, hearing recurring stories about deals that Casa was leading. And so, you know, I was aware of them as a fund active in the space focused on the ancillary markets. And by 2018, they'd been involved for a number of years. And so it really was, you know, a, a reach out. Um, I just thought, you know, heard very good things about Karin, 
both within my network and from the market overall. And so, you know, connected with him through mutual friends. And, you know, it really was one meeting um, that we had in, in LA where, you know, I just walked in and said, you know, here's a glaring hole that I see in the industry, but you know the space much better than I do. Am I totally off base or is there something to do here? And fortunately, he had been thinking along the same lines himself, right? Um, he had seen very clearly what these operators are struggling with in terms of lack of access to services. And that's obviously what his fund's whole focus was in terms of building ancillary companies that support the industry much broader. And so it really did go, you know, from cold to hot very quickly. Um, after that one conversation, it was just a mutual fit of both the vision and in terms of resources that we were all bringing to the table, myself coming from a lending background, and then also current having, you know, already gone through the exercise of raising capital, deploying funds within the space and really understanding where the need is. And so that partnership was a very natural fit. Um, and it's just been off to the races ever since. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we met early days. Um, so, so we'd love to kind of go back to you know, early days of, of Bespoke Financial, where you started out with, with a co-founder and you were more so the CFO. So just, you know, would be helpful for the audience to understand sort of that co-founder dynamic and, and sort of what, what happened. Yeah, it was it was interesting, especially the landscape in 2018. Um, you know, there, there were actually three other co-founders alongside myself. So Jeff Gitman, who had started initially, um, you know, he came from a consulting background in the cannabis industry. So he's very familiar with the limited options for banking that the industry had at the time. Um, and also did have a pretty extensive network within the cannabis industry itself. And so he was coming in really to, to head up our business development, our relationships, and then also get some of the fundamental services in place. My contribution really came in from, a, okay, let's say we have a potential applicant that's interested in financing. How do we do this in a responsible way? I mean, if you think back to 2017, 2018, the vast amount of financing that was available for this industry came from equity investors. So there were a couple of VCs that were actively deploying space. There were a lot of high net worth individuals that were getting in front, in front of you know, what was expected to be very quick federal legalization. And then it was a lot of bootstrapped companies that sort of you know, built up their own operations or did friends and family rounds in order to raise money. What happened, you know, as happens usually in any market is that the industry started getting very, very frothy. So this expectation of immediate legalization on the federal level in line with what had happened in Canada, coupled with the fact that, you know, I think investors were very, very delusional regarding the, the numerous challenges that anyone would face starting an industry from the ground up, right? Just from operations, logistics, from really understanding what, you know, the consumer ultimately wanted um, and how to make sure that product is flowing and you have enough capital in order to scale these operations. And so it was pretty broad. And, and you know, part, part of our, our underlying motivation was this understanding that eventually these valuations had to correct. And when they did correct, this equity financing that these companies were very reliant on was going to be highly dilutive for the owners and the founders. And so for us, offering a non-dilutive debt-only financing solution we thought was going to be critical for these companies to, one, continue operations in what could be seen as, as a down market, and then second, retain ownership and, and enjoy the upside of actually succeeding and, and building a successful company. And so after the first year of Bespoke's existence, I moved to be the CEO. Um, Jeff had transitioned out and went back to his previous role as a, uh, as a consultant to the industry. And, you know, 
still involved um, in the company in terms of making introductions and, and connecting us with potential clients or, or potential service providers that might be a fit. But the focus, once we had done the initial setup of the company, had shifted from a, you know, day one skill set need to now being a purely financially focused and, and underwriting focused and risk focused operation. And so it, it was the right time for, for me to step in. Jeff also did have his first child at the time and, you know, lifestyle wise, you know, for him, it was, it was a good time for him to take a step back. And so I moved up in June, 2019 to take the, the CEO position. And then, you know, that's also in line with when we had brought on our first actual borrowing customer. And so, you know, the story of two, the second half of 2019, I think is, is pretty well known to everyone who's followed the space, but, you know, everything we had expected in terms of that equity capital becoming significantly more expensive and highly dilutive really did just hit incredibly faster than what we had expected ourselves. And so this, this focus on risk and understanding the underlying collateral that we're lending against and making sure that we're building a sustainable platform that didn't have all its eggs in one bucket or was going to get suddenly, you know, wiped out because of losses or, 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 you know, just bad decisions in terms of who to work for. That was just the more pressing need at the time. And so that, that seemed to be the optimal time for us to make the, uh, the transition. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, startups and, and, and kids, uh, especially, you know, having kids or starting to have kids, uh, don't really go together. Uh, That's right. Perspective. Um, yeah. So, so let's talk more about your solutions, right? So line of credit, inventory financing, invoice financing, purchase money financing. Uh, can you talk more about those solutions and also maybe what percentages roughly those uh, businesses are from a revenue standpoint? Sure. Yeah. I mean, really, when we look at the landscape of cannabis, it's, you know, 35, 36 different individual markets tied to a specific state. This isn't one U.S. market that we're dealing with. And so on day one, um, our focus was strictly on the California market, which had turned on in 2018. It was the largest market in the U.S., it's where the, you know, the entire team was based at the time, and it's where we had good roots and good networks to really start getting some traction. Um, our product development has really mimicked what the glaring need of the industry has been at the time, and also the popularity of our products has done the same. And so when we first started in 2019, our first ever product was really just invoice financing. It was lending against a company's AR balance so that they could access capital without waiting for their you know, 100-day, 120-day cash flow conversion cycle to come in. They just had slow-paying customers. They had needs to go purchase raw materials to scale their business. And a lot of their capital was just tied up on their balance sheet in AR. And so for 2019, our, our number one product was easily invoice financing because that was the most pressing issue at the time. Going into the later half of 2019, one thing we started seeing was that a lot of these manufacturers and distributors started cutting relationships with non-paying customers. You know, it wasn't, it was no longer the assumption that, look, eventually the money will appear and eventually these, these invoices will be money good. It was suddenly a, a focus on only working with, with partners that intended to do what they said they would in terms of paying for the product that they purchased from you. And so that problem self-corrected to a large degree just within the industry itself. And then the focus then shifted on how are we going to source our raw materials because there were more operators turning on. There was a, a emphasis placed on, you know, being able to source enough biomass, being able to source enough packaging hardware, being able to increase your purchasing power to really level up your operations and really strive for, you know, better unit economics by producing on a much broader scale. And so 
that's when we developed our, our inventory financing product, which, which really did allow our operators to really manage their sourcing and was a very useful tool for, for companies to have on hand. And even today, you know, we talk to our clients who say, you know, if they're a manufacturer and they go visit a cultivator and they see uh, a harvest that they really like the product, they like the flower, and with our financing in hand, they understand that they're in a position to just make buying decisions in real time and negotiate really considerable discounts as a result of that. Um, and so for us, the inventory financing became, you know, much more popular, um, you know, starting the late, the, the very tail end of 2019, beginning of 2020. And that was also the time that we expanded out into four new markets. So Colorado, Oregon, Washington, and Arizona, we turned on with the same invoice financing and, and uh, inventory financing products as well. Going into 2020, um, we ended up launching two new products as well. One was purchase money financing. It works as a very good hybrid of inventory and invoice financing. And it was for customers that were either too early or operating at too small of a scale to qualify under our underwriting criteria for inventory financing. So this was a, a product we, we built out just to address this mid bucket of operators who would ultimately then migrate up to inventory financing once they'd built a, a track record with us in terms of borrow, borrowing and repayments. But lastly, what we developed was this general line of credit because even as early as 2020, what we started getting, we started seeing applications from companies that were already operating with revenues north of $50 million on an annual basis, already profitable in terms of, you know, how they're running their business and, and you know, the, the scope of their operations. And they were really looking for something that was much more flexible, just capital that they could use to manage very, very high, you know, quarterly tax payments or to fund expansions of their cultivation or their operations in terms of buying equipment or lighting or, or moving out into a new space just so that they can ramp up their, their production or to use it very similar to how inventory financing is used to pay their suppliers and their vendors. So we developed this line of credit product, which honestly at the time we didn't expect to be very popular solely because we didn't think a lot of the industry could qualify for it realistically. Um, and you know, it's funny because if you look at the retreat of equity capital in 2019, and then the impacts of COVID in early 2020, these were two consecutive, you know, what I'd call punches to the face to the industry. And what it did was it forced these operators to really just say, okay, this isn't, you know, a temporary blip on our screens. There isn't a wall of money that's right around the, the corner. If we want to survive, we're going to need to make some hard decisions cut back on our expenses and really optimize our operations. And so there was an organic focus on getting to a stronger financial health with a lot of companies in the space. And so over the course of 2020, you know, by Q4 2020, we were, we were as shocked as anyone else that line of credit had become our most popular product. You know, clients love the flexibility of it. They like the ability to use it as they needed. We love the credit quality of these applicants we were seeing. Um, you know, they were making very smart decisions. And, you know, I, I do think at the end of the day, you know, too much money can be a, a negative thing for how you run your business. You know, it doesn't, it, it doesn't force you to economize when you just think you have all the resources in the world. And I think the, the shift to being in a very resource starved environment to some degree really did force, you know, the, the really good operators with a strong game plan and understanding of their business to really rise to the top. And we were able to capture that activity and really help them over the hurdle. And so, you know, sitting where we are today, you know, I'd say about 60% of our, our activity sits with this general line of credit. Um, you know, 
also in 2021, we had expanded into an additional six markets. Right now, we have we have clients that that are borrowing in, you know, a totality of of 11 plus markets across the U.S. And so, for us, line of credit is is definitely the biggest bucket. Inventory financing is is right behind it with about 25% of of our exposure, and then the other two products make up the balance. And they're really meant to be more of a a stepping stone to build a relationship with us and ultimately migrate up to the more flexible forms of financing. Yeah, that's interesting. I I would have guessed invoice uh, financing would have still been sort of your, your largest product, but makes sense. I mean, you know, typically there there's a huge pool of companies that can't get the traditional bank financing and they're too small for you know some of these real estate focused uh, uh creditors right where they're, they're asking more for like 10 million plus sizes so you guys offering line of credits from 100k to 10 million is kind of a sweet spot that offers a, a well it's it's honestly no, north of that i mean our our we're, we're you know i'd say the range of our line goes you know as small as as a quarter million and and on the north side it's it's you know $30 million and, and growing. So we, we've actually managed, and that's actually been a re- really good experience of ours over the past three years working with these companies is the fact that, you know, a lot of our clients are sitting on lines that are multiples and significant multiples of, of where they started working with us. And, and we're not talking, you know, 2X, 3X, we're talking 20X, 30X where they started. And for us, you know, because of our surveillance and because of, you know, the fact that we're monitoring these companies on an ongoing basis, when suddenly one of our borrowers suddenly sees the opportunity to grow into a new market or, or really you know, optimize their, their own unit economics. And the question comes back to us, it's, hey, we need to double our line, we need to triple our line. It's a very easy decision for us. There isn't that long initial underwriting that we go through where we're just trying to get familiar with the business and the team itself. It's very easy for us to look at, look at what we've been following along in the surveillance and understand if it makes sense and if it makes sense, we're here to grow with with our clients as well. And so, you know, in terms of a scale, we, we've definitely gotten up to that big boy bucket, um, you know, 30 million plus in terms of credit facilities that we offer. But at the same time, the vast majority of this industry is starting off in that small to mid-sized bucket. And, you know, we think having this strong partnership and then also having these long relationships where these companies stay with us because they understand when it comes to execution and when it comes to reliability, you know, we do what we say and, and you know, we, we, we always make sure that we're over delivering on our promises to our clients and moving as quickly as possible to make sure that we're not impediment on their growth. And that's really been a huge selling point for a lot of these companies that are now, you know, doing well north of 100 million in, in top line revenue, but, you know, still still choosing to work with us just because of that, the strength of their experience. Yeah. And, and, and who are those customers that are closer to the $30 million Line of credit. Well, we can't we can't share specific names, but you know we've always found a very good fit um, in terms of the manufacturing and distribution part of the supply chain, just because these are operators that are working with you know high input costs. If their sales are growing, those input costs are increasing just as a function of their sales growth by itself, and at the same time. They have broad footprints. They're selling to a variety of different customers, and so their working capital needs are the most pressing. Um, just and you know, obviously, their businesses succeed as they're able to optimize that turnover and that velocity of, of cycling that capital and reinvesting it into the next production cycle. So, at, from day one, we, we've had a very compelling case for you know when it comes to manufacturers and distributors, cultivators. You know, once we had the the line of credit product, you know. They, they then started using the financing more for expansion. And one thing we've seen is that 
by being able to scale up the operations and the footprint of these cultivators, they're better, they're in a much better position to weather the price action that you saw last year, especially in California. You know, you just do need scale in order to survive this volatility. And it's something that I expect, you know, we should get accustomed to when it comes to the industry maturing overall. The end goal is always, you know, you have an industry that's producing product that at a lower price point, more attainable for the consumer. And, and in order to be able to continue to succeed, you have to have a business that's able to get as efficient as the rest of the market. Um, dispensaries have always been interesting. You know, we, we've had, we've had, I'd say, decent success with dispensaries um, up to last year. And one thing we noticed was that, you know, if you look at how these organizations are structured, I think dispensaries have the most compelling case where an independent mom and pop or small, small multi-location chain does have the ability to compete with some of these MSOs that have, you know, 13, 14, 20 dispensary locations in a given state. And so I think if you look at forward in terms of what's projected for the growth of the cannabis industry, when we talk about the industry growing 30, 40% year over year, that's not an active consumer this year consuming 30% more cannabis next year. That growth comes from new consumers entering into the space. And any new consumer that's looking at an edible or looking at a topical is going to want to go and get educated about what it is they're buying. So I think dispensaries have a very strong, you know, lasting staying power when it comes to the industry for the next couple of years in a way where on the cultivation side, you know, the larger operators and, you know, the ones that are consolidating and purchasing up operations will have a definitive advantage in terms of production and scale. So for us, what we realized is these dispensaries are oftentimes the most resource tapped, um, you know, no dedicated CFO, possibly not even a VP of finance. They really don't have time for a lengthy underwriting process. They don't, they don't want to go the full mile in terms of, you know, waiting however long it takes to gather materials and wait for a response. And so what we've launched at the end of last year was a, a financing product specifically catered to dispensaries that has had fantastic traction, um, whereby, you know, these companies are now able to, you know, approach us, understand our financing products, and really be in a position to start accessing financing within a matter of, you know, three days or less. Um, we just optimized our underwriting. We, you know, we, we have a good, good faith in in what our credit criteria are when it looks at when it comes to looking at these companies and we just wanted to make that as easy to use and as frictionless for dispensaries as possible and so that's the new product where we we just want to make sure that our products are as appropriately geared for for each of the users across the supply chain to continue our growth and and you know continue supporting that industry and on that point, you know, there's a lot of consolidation happening, especially, let's say, in California, where rather than waiting for MSOs to enter California, I've seen a lot of single state operators in California consolidate there. Are you guys offering dispensaries, you know, line of credit potentially for M&A financing or not quite there yet? Yeah, I mean, we, we our, our financing is open to any operator across the supply chain. It often comes down to like what their intended use is and, and what their game plan is for the next couple of years. So we haven't really seen that M&A demand come from the independents. What we have seen is, you know, these operators really looking to optimize their own operations and, you know, increasing their purchasing power, giving them the flexibility to, you know, source the product that they that they actually know will sell at attractive valuations just so that they'll, they'll, they'll be in a position to increase their gross margin. That seems to be the more pressing need right now. Again, just logistically, it's it's very hard to get the economies of scale that you do at, uh, you know, further up the supply chain 
at the dispensary level because you can have locations that are you know just disparate from a geographic standpoint just far away very hard to sort of coordinate and consolidate their operations and inventory management and one thing we've seen is that even a lot of these multi-location dispensaries they tend to run each location as a standalone business and so the idea of consolidation as much as it makes sense from an economic standpoint, from an operational standpoint, that's not the more pressing need. But yeah, all, all of our financing is, is broadly available for, for any applicant. And that's something that we do within our initial outreach is just really understand what the client's end goal is. And then looking at our product suite and understanding which one of these is best catered to it. Um, but at the end of the day, just from a day-to-day operation standpoint, you know, there's a lot of volatility in the world in general these days. And so access to financing is, is still quite limited, especially for the smaller operators that, again, don't have a dedicated team to just go scour the market and see what's available. And so, you know, our goal, especially right now, is just to make sure we're addressing the, the biggest needs and the broadest needs for the industry overall, while also at the same time, making sure we're there for whatever the next step of that company's journey will be. Got it. That makes sense. And then I want to go back to something you said earlier about, you know, manufacturers probably making up the, the bulk of, of your line of credit today. So um, one of your, your customers that you call on the website is Jeter. So is Jeter considered more of a, a manufacturer or a brand? Um, I, I would consider them both, um, quite honestly. But yes, obviously, in terms of their, their licensing, they're producing infused pre-rolls. They're the number one pre-roll brand in, in the, the California market. And they've recently expanded into Michigan, Arizona, and, and definitely have a game plan to take their successful product and, and move it into new markets. They definitely fall within that, that manufacturing bucket. When we say brands, we typically mean brands that are not plan touching. So brands like that would work know. with a license operator, um, as opposed to Jeter, who, you know, and all credit goes to them just in terms of quality control and, and you know, really getting obsessing in a very good way about the quality of their product and then what they're turning out. And I think their, their success over, over the past, you know, call, well, they've been in operation since 2016, but you know, their success, especially over the past two years, just speaks for itself in terms of the consumers responding very well to what they've put out. Yeah. They've really taken the market by storm in the last, you know, year and a half. So, so curious about that. Walk us through that sort of, you know, where was Dreamfields or, or Jeter, before they started working with you guys and, and how have you helped them grow to where they are now, where they're definitely one of the, the hottest brands uh, recently? Yeah, I mean, when when we started chatting with them, you know, they started off focused on, on manufacturing, but also wholesale distribution. And so, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I think I think one of their, their keys to success is the fact that they had a lot of the core components of their plant touching business just in place from, from a wholesale standpoint. And, you know, the, the team there, obviously, you know, has been very successful in the past in terms of building out, you know, the Life in Color music festival, growing that, ultimately selling it to, to a public company, and then coming to, to California. These are people that just really understand how to build a brand that really, you know, do focus on, on the quality of the product that they're putting out there. And at the end of the day, just, you know, a really nice group of guys to, to work with. And, and you know, the, as soon as we start seeing that, you know, these are operators that, not only have achievable but aggressive goals, but also do consistently execute on their milestones and 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 what they set for themselves in terms of goals and and you know objectives on a recurring basis. Like I said, it's very easy for us to to level up with them. And so you know, in terms of when we started with them, you know, 
the Jeter brand was already in existence. It was, it was, you know, starting to get a footprint in California, but the lack of access to scalable financing was really, really the, the limiting, the limiting factor. And quite honestly, you know, when we started chatting with them, you know, they, like any other operator at the time was exploring a public listing in Canada, which would have been, you know, obviously highly dilutive from, from an ownership standpoint, and also does open you up to the volatility of just being a public company, you know, just, market sentiment can turn for no reason specifically tied to your business and you're left there sort of along the ride and suddenly your funding sources go from you know hot to cold very quickly and you're you're you know basically left trying to figure out how to run your business once they learned our product and once they got into a rhythm of how to use it in terms of optimizing their their supply you know really scaling up their operations look they, we can't take any credit for the strength of their sales you know they since day 1 they've always had far more demand in this space than they were ever able to meet just from a production standpoint. And, you know, we've done our best to get them as close to meeting that demand. But, you know, when the demand is growing so exponentially, it's just, you know, a very, very hard to play catch up. And I think, you know, it bodes well for them as a business in terms of new opportunities. So, you know, we've, we've definitely enjoyed working with them. And like I said, it's, a, it's an excellent management team. And now our focus is on, you know, how do we continue to be their financing partner in this next evolution as they start looking more nationally in their scope? Yeah, I'm looking at the case study on the website and I think it said they grew a thousand percent into the large pre-row brand as of March, 2021. So I guess that growth might have been year over year or, or from May, 2020, but it certainly seems like it was very favorable for them to work with Bespoke and now have better numbers and a much larger valuation uh, should they choose to engage equity investors. That's right. Yep. Um, so, so let's talk about your, your, your client base. Um, you know, so do they turn when they have cash flow or have, you know, given that cash flow is very hard to come by in the space? Um, do you have pretty good customer retention? Um, our, our customer retention has been fantastic, quite honestly. I mean, like I said, you know, the, the growth from working with a borrower and then taking their credit limit up, you know, 20, 30 X over, over the course of, of, you know, a number of years, just, I think speaks to the fact that the need that we're addressing isn't a temporary need. And, you know, if you think of the overall opportunity set in the market as growing 30, 40% year over year, you know, I don't think there's any successful entrepreneur who, you know, sort of rests on their laurels, especially this early within the, the development of any sort of market. And so, Typically, what we see is, you know, the financing needs go up as, as the client experiences success and growth in any given market. So retention, honestly, hasn't been an issue for us. The, the fact that, you know, there is seasonality in this space and depending on what part of the supply chain you're talking about, like, it's entirely possible that, you know, a cultivator, for example, could be in a very strong cash flow position in the early part of the year. But then, you know, as you start getting into Q3 and Q4, as more supply comes on and prices dip, then their needs become more pronounced just because, you know, they're not as able, they're not as able to generate as much revenue as they were earlier in the year. The fact that our financing does offer our borrowers the flexibility to, you know, use the financing at the parts of the year when you really need it and ultimately reduce your exposure and your interest expense when you don't definitely does help these customers manage their overall, you know, how they're allocating capital across the business. But at the end of the day, 
you know, the new year will be here and, and those same financing needs are oftentimes just higher than they were the previous year. And so for us, retention and, and clients leaving hasn't been an issue, especially because, you know, there's not really <laughs> a lot of places to leave to. Um, lending is still a very limited, limited option for this industry overall. And so for these operators, especially until there's movement on the federal side, they're, they're, they have a much greater preference to work with someone who actually does just execute on, on the promises delivered to the client than there is to necessarily go out and try and, you know, scrape the bottom barrel of, of every dollar that, that might be out there. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, I figured that'd be the case that retention is pretty good. Um, how about in terms of, you know, markets? You're in 11 markets now. You mentioned starting in California. What's sort of the, the makeup from a percentage standpoint of, of those new markets? Yeah, I'd say, you know, obviously California, just with our, our core focus and, and boots on the ground is definitely our, our main component, um, you know, well north of, of 60% of our exposure is tied to California. What's interesting over the past year is that, you know, we've had a lot of expansion into new markets just alongside our more successful clients, um, you know, they're moving into new markets, they're taking, you know, bespoke financing to really get started and, and scale up in you know, whether it's Michigan, Colorado, um, Oregon, Arizona, like we, we tend to have a great amount of success just in, with the partnerships and continuing these relationships in, in new areas that they venture into. So for us, you know, as much as California is home base and, you know, obviously 2020 was very challenging from, from a, a, you know, getting around the country standpoint and travel being very restricted, um, I, we've done a lot in, in 2021 and since to really grow our presence where, you know, coast to coast, whether it's California, Oregon, Washington, or, you know, call it Maine, uh, Oklahoma, Michigan, Illinois, we've just managed to expand our, our client focus. And, and, you know, the team as well um, has, has definitely expanded geographically. Right now, you know, I'd say about 50% of the team is located in, in Southern California, but, you know, we also have uh, teams that are sitting in the Bay Area, in Colorado, in Chicago, and in, in Massachusetts as well. So we're definitely growing alongside the market and alongside our, our portfolio. Got it. And, and then, you know, from a sort of a, a partnership standpoint, you guys have a, a very recently announced uh, partnership with uh, PayQuick. So, so tell me more about how that came up and, and sort of, you know, how that should drive growth for, for Bespoke. Sure. Yeah. So we've we've worked with PayQuick in, I'd say, a very informal sense for the past three years. Um, you know, they were one of the earliest um, tech based service providers that were offering treasury services and deposit services for the cannabis industry. Um, anyone who's, who sort of understands the, the banking landscape understands that if you if a cannabis operator approaches a national bank um, for a bank account, they're really playing uh, a, a, you know, I'd say a very risky game in terms of hoping that the fact that their cannabis operator doesn't make its way up to the risk department. Um, we've seen a lot of companies try to skirt by with, with accounts at some of these national banks that ultimately have to wake up one morning and realize that their account was shut down. And now they're really ha ha hamstrung in terms of having to open another account very quickly in a very rushed way. The other option has historically been working with, you know, credit unions or, or smaller state chartered banks that are happy to work with cannabis companies, but have a significantly higher cost of operation from a compliance standpoint. They just have to add more resources, more bodies. And what that means is the fees that these cannabis companies pay for banking services is just you know, extremely high relative to what non-cannabis companies are paying. 
PayQuick, um, we always thought was ver a very compelling offering just because they leveraged their tech platform to really automate a significant amount of this compliance. And there's a lot of it in, in the banking space when it comes to, to cannabis between the KYC, AML, you know, all, all the background checks that they have to do before opening an account. And then ultimately on an ongoing basis, making sure that you're not dealing with a black market operator and that the activity that, you know, you're seeing come through on the client side is legal between licensed parties. The fact that they were able to leverage their technology just always made them very, very competitive from a cost standpoint. And so they've been a reliable partner for us over the past couple of years. Bespoke does require that all of our clients have cannabis compliant banking. And especially in the early part of our existence, that was very hard where, you know, we would have a client we wanted to work with, but who ultimately didn't have banking. And we really didn't have many good options to, to send them to or point them to. And so we, after, you know, having a very successful couple of years of directing these, these applicants to pay quick, seeing the responsiveness, seeing that the accounts turn on, and then also the ease of use in terms of working with their banking, with their, you know, bank service provider as PayQuick, we decided that it would be really, really helpful for us to just formalize that relationship and really focus on offering a streamlined package solution for any cannabis operators. So that now, not only are we coming in with the solution for your financing needs, but we also have a partner who can help you on the, the deposit side and on the, the electronic payment side and vice versa as well. You know, a lot of PayQuick's customers are also looking for financing and, and you know, also want that reliability of having a vetted partner. And, and you know, there's, there's just been a lot of noise in, in the cannabis space and a lot of, I think, empty promises when it comes to service providers. And I think, you know, the fact that we've worked with PayQuick for a number of years before formally putting this partnership in place just gives us a, a tremendous amount of confidence and its success. And ultimately, the benefits flow to the industry. You know, I think any MSO or any company that's publicly listed um, in Canada or, you know, went through the whole SPAC process in the US, these are, these are companies that probably already have all of this in place. You know, they have banking, they clearly have a couple of avenues to access financing. But again, if you look at the vast majority of operators being small to mid-size, resource, you know, limited in terms of who can devote time to going out and scouring options available. I think this just becomes a very, very easy, easy package solution that will continue to market on our side and vice versa. PayQuick will as well. And I think at the end of the day, the industry benefits just from having, you know, sort of package solution put in front of them. And for us, like we understand that the success of the cannabis industry is, is pivotal for our own success as financiers focused on the space. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense given that, you know, their, their services include invoicing and, and bill pay. So very logical extension uh, to work with you guys. Yep. So curious, um, you know, competitors, who are you guys competing with today for, for customer attention? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, again, I don't know if this is a function of how regional the market is um, on a state-by-state -state basis, but honestly, I think if you think about the total amount of, you know, debt financing that's available, the vast majority of this is tied to real estate, which you had mentioned before. And quite honestly, there's just a, a significant portion of this market that just doesn't own real estate. You know, they're, they're either on leases um, and, and they're trying to figure out other collateral that they can use to securitize it. And so as much as I think commercial real estate is a very viable option that any operator should seriously consider if they actually do have property that they can leverage, um, we find that that is not the case for the vast majority of companies that we chat with. And so we haven't really run into any sort of clear competitor. You know, there are 
you know, lenders out there like a Chicago Atlantic, for example, or an AFC Gamma. These are, you know, companies that are focused more so on the larger operators, MSOs, publicly listed companies. Um, and so it's a different focus where we, we really do try to target just, you know, size agnostic, state agnostic, just finding good operators. And we can start, you know, at, at the mid midpoint of their growth cycle, we can start earlier, we can start later, we just want to build a, a partnership and a relationship. And so, like I said, with retention, just being very high, just with our clients being very pleased with their experience, we've been in, in a pretty healthy position where like, you know, we're not going head to head. And that's what you'd expect. I think with the market are still having so much growth in front of it, it's far from a zero sum game. So it makes sense that, you know, we're not in this highly competitive space where, you know, it comes down to the basis point in terms of who's winning deals. I think these operators are more focused on the vetting, um, our reputation within the market, and then ultimately finding the tool that gives, gives companies their, their best use case. I mean, we've had instances of, you know, other companies, you know, not sharing the name of the lender, but saying they have another term sheet for a larger limit for a term loan. And ultimately our product, even with, you know, a smaller amount of financing that was scalable, that they could repay if they didn't need it anymore, ultimately made more sense for the operators. And so it's never, it's, it's never been just a question of, all right, we need to go out there with the massive size, or we just need to be, you know, incredibly aggressive with our terms and covenants. It's always just been a, look, there's a huge opportunity set in front of us. Let's go find the the partners that that work best within our framework and for our products. And and to that end, you know, there's definitely just been enough of enough of a, a client pool for everyone who's who's focused on this space to really find a home and deploy capital. So I, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but isn't uh, LeafLink Financial uh, more so your core competitor today? That's yeah. This is why I, I mentioned the regional component. You know, not really. Shockingly enough, you know, we we've definitely heard of them for quite some time. Um, but I do think from from a top down perspective, they've had just a much bigger focus in in markets. And again, I'm not the authority on this, but you know, they they've been more so focused. I think in in states like a Michigan or an Oklahoma, where they've also unveiled logistics services. And so for us, like I said. Our, our core most popular product moved away from invoice financing very, very early back in, back in, you know, the tail end of, of 2019, very early 2020, our focus on inventory financing and the line of credit were just fundamentally different products. And so it just hasn't been this one-to-one -one competition. I mean, in fact, we had worked with a lot of borrowers where we were providing inventory financing where, you know, they were using the factoring services offered by LeafLink Financial. So for us, it's never an exclusive you can only work with with one financial service provider, especially if that other financial service provider is just adding liquidity and taking and, and de-risking our own borrowers. You know, we're happy to have them do it, but it's more, I think, a geographic focus. And again, we've been very, very big in California. Um, we've had a lot of success finding good growing operators. And I think they've just focused on, on different markets for, for quite some time. Got it. And, and I would assume it's, it's more so, you know, the, the primary offering there might be to drive the B2B Canvas platform. Um, so it's more of an additive product. than a Yeah, it's, it's, it's possible. Like I said, I, I'm not the authority on, on what they do. And, and, you know, until it becomes more of a, you know, crowded space, I, I don't expect we'll get a ton of insight, but it just hasn't been a factor in terms of our, our business development. Got it. And, and then in, in terms of, you know, your own capital to, to lend um, with. Um, you guys did 125 million 
debt financing back in December. Uh, so four months ago now, um, are, are you pretty much tapping into that fully? Is, is there plans to increase that debt financing amount? Um, what's the outlook there? Yeah, I mean, any any fintech platform has in its future growth, just recurring financing activity. So, you know, we're not fully tapped on that amount. You know, you know we, we've been, I think, slightly ahead of our own projection in terms of utilization. But I do expect that, like, we're, we're going to have recurring financing needs and, and, and a growth in the portfolio and in our debt facilities themselves concurrently. So, you know, I'd expect this to be just a recurring exercise as the opportunity set is growing and as our platform is growing. There's I, I'd say, you know, there'll never be a, a position where we've raised all the capital we need to unless, you know, the industry itself starts moving to a, you know, decreasing year over year, whether it's sales or activity or, or the financing need overall. And I just don't see that coming anytime soon. So I'd expect to keep an eye out for, for more fundraising announcements from us, because that just should be, you know, standard course of operation on, you know, what I'm thinking pro probably an annual basis. Right. And, and, and uh, is that going to be debt or equity or combination for you guys? Both, both, you know, we're, we're also investing a lot into our technology, you know, our engineering team and our data teams have been growing um, very, very aggressively. And so like, it's never one or the other. And this is something we tell our clients as well. It's all about finding the right use case. And so the debt capital really is the bandwidth for us to, you know, manage our loan originations and our operations. The equity capital will be for the longer term projects and investments that we're making, um, growing the team and, and having enough resources to make sure we're executing on additional complementary services or ideas that we can pair alongside our financing. So I assume you've probably done the, the math on, on raising equity versus taking out a line credit yourself uh, as a company. Well, it's, it's, it's a different, it's a different use case, you know, and it comes down to the investors that are providing the capital. There's just different yield targets and hurdles. Like an equity investor is really looking to understand, you know, how's your business going to grow by multiples going forward with the capital that they provide the debt, the debt investors are really just focused on like, okay, how can I maximize my yield for the amount of risk I'm taking? And, you know, how correlated is this to the broader market? And so it's a different use case and it's different pools of money that come. But like I said, both are very much in our future on a recurring basis, just in line with any other, you know, sort of ancillary service company that you see out there. Yep. Nope. That makes sense. Got to consider pros and cons of both. Um, so from a growth perspective for you guys, you know, what's sort of in, in the plans the next few years? Is it to go deeper into markets you're in, uh, deeper into markets you're already in? Is it bagging, you know, larger brands? What's sort of on, on the growth uh, plans? Yeah, um, all of the above and then some. Quite honestly, uh, you know, for us, again, the, the horizon of cannabis is ever expanding, um, you know, whether it's new markets turning on, you know, obviously there's a lot of excitement on the East Coast with New Jersey turning on recreational sales and New York expected to follow as soon as, you know, the regulations and, and the politicians are able to get, get measures in place to allow the industry to grow. Um, and then even across the, the country, there's just, I think, a significant amount of room for additional opportunity steps. So for us, it's, yes, very much continue to, you know, have a presence and, and focus on, good operators, market agnostic, supply chain, you know, agnostic, um, really just focusing on finding management teams that have a very well-defined vision um, and a plan to get there and really be the, the tool that enables them in order to achieve their dreams. And that's, you know, true of every single market that, that will turn on. We typically are not 
um, you know, the first movers when a new market does turn on, we like to have some operating history so that we, there's something to underwrite and there's something to understand about the market dynamics and, and about the companies themselves. And so we wouldn't be showing up on a new market on day one, but, you know, really within two or three, you know, one or two quarters since, since sales start, we're definitely starting conversations and it helps that a lot of our existing clients are focused on these new growth opportunities as well. And so oftentimes that transition and that movement into a new space is, is you know, a very easy conversation. It's something that just happens as a network effect, just given given how big our book is right now. Yeah, and I gotta imagine your your Massachusetts customers are, are probably thinking already about entry into New York and New Jersey. So it'll be a lot. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's right.